Welcome to Sure Foundation Lutheran Church's podcast channel. The following sermon was preached on July 30th, 2023 by Pastor Mark Burkholtz on the basis of Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 to 52. not going to reread the gospel lessons this time, but you could keep your worship folder open to page 7. We'll be looking primarily at verses 44, 45, 46. There is a place on page 9, too, and you have a pen with your worship folder. You can make notes. Pastor Wilkie is here, so if you have any questions after the sermon and the service, you can ask him. That's what that's there for. All right. So, for those of us who have wasted too much of our time sitting in front of a TV and being entertained by it for the last 50 or 60 years, uh, Alex Trebek, familiar name? Okay. Anybody? Yeah, okay. So, anybody care to say who it is? Hmm? Jeopardy, yeah, hosted Jeopardy for what, 40-some years? All right, so then sick, I believe it was cancer, right? Stepped away, died, and he had to be replaced. So here's the trivia. Who's his primary replacement? Ken? Yep, anybody know the last name? Jennings, okay. So it's been going back and forth, been to several guest hosts and stuff like that, but Jennings is the main guy now, right? I hope so, because that's what my premise here is. Ken Jennings has taken over Jeopardy, but he's not just a host of Jeopardy. Do you know he's also an author? Published a book recently. It's called 100 Things to See After You Die. Strange title? Yeah, because normally a book like that, you know, 100 Things to See, you're thinking of some sort of travel thing, right? Go to Europe. What do you want to see in Europe, Asia, Kansas? If you went to Kansas, 100 Things to See in Kansas, I don't know. Uh, but, but it's not it. Uh, he's, he's not talking about a travelogue. He, he's fascinated by the subject of the afterlife. And so he spent a considerable amount of time studying different religions and different mythical systems and also pop culture, music, poetry, novels. What are the general feelings people have out there all over the world about the afterlife? It, is it, in fact, true? What's it like? And he, and he finds several things to be somewhat common as he goes through the different interpretations of life after death and what exists there. He said it, it, it is uh, interesting to see that the systems, which include something of what you and I would call hell, a negative afterlife, those systems and, and that teaching in particular seems not so much to be something to talk about for the afterlife, but it's pulled back into the present life as a way of guilting people into obedience. Normally involved where money is, Right? You, you and I would call that in Lutheran circles law motivation. Ooh, that's nasty stuff to Lutherans. Don't want to hear that. But it's used predominantly, hell, the concept of the afterlife being negative, that if you don't behave in this life and give enough, that, well, that's where you're going to end up. <coughs> Second finding in Jennings comes across, and he talks about it. The perception of heaven is much more vague. It's not as clearly articulated and explained. In, in many systems, we tend to be vague in the way that we describe heaven, not just within Christianity, but all sorts of myths. Just leave it kind of nephrous in, in nature. Well, well, in a sense, that's good. I, I worry sometimes when people will say, heaven's going to be a place where the coffee's always warm and the beer's cold. Or the fish are always biting. I, I think that kind of downplays heaven. I hate it when people get that particular. 
Right? It, it should be kind of curious to us and, and indescribable because that's the way the New Testament puts it. So Jennings is saying simply this is fairly common in all the different variations and views on what the afterlife is like in a positive way. Third observation he makes in the book is this. Most of us tend not to talk about death in the afterlife. He goes so far as to say the vast majority of us in U.S. culture, the last time we had a serious conversation about the afterlife is when Big Bird was talking to us from a scream. Sesame Street, right? When Big Bird was talking to us, and we talked back. And that's the last time. We just don't talk about that kind of stuff with our kids or our grandkids or our parents. And then finally, and this is where this is leading to, he comes across his final conclusion would be this. Whatever the afterlife is, whether it actually exists or not, it's got the key to the meaning of life. Would you agree with that? I know not the middle part, but about whether it exists or not. We believe there is an afterlife, right? But, but could you say, yeah, that's kind of spot on. Whatever the afterlife is, it's got the key to the meaning of life. That's a pretty Christian phrase. And Jennings gives no indication in the book that he is a Christian. He doesn't adapt one myth or another or one religion or one piece of pop culture or another. But he does say in common in many of these systems is that whatever the afterlife happens to be, no matter what your perception is, that tends to have an influence in the way that you behave and think and act and speak in this life. That's a biblical principle. Sometimes the best way to explain the Christian perspective on life is look ahead to the future and then work backwards. If we are, in fact, destined for heaven, God has said that's true. By grace, that's where your destiny is, right? This is how you behave here. So in a vague, sort of general way, we could say, well, Ken Jennings, you're close. It'd be nice if you included Jesus in there, but you're close. But the future does influence the presence. That sort of thinking stands in back of the brief parables that are in front of you today. We're not going to look at all three of them. We're going to look just at the first two in this particular section from Matthew chapter 13. Keep in mind what a parable is. Earthly story, heavenly meaning. Found predominantly in Matthew and also in the Gospel of Luke. Matthew 13 contains five parables. They all center on the kingdom of God. What's the kingdom of God? Sounds like a nebulous statement. Well, the kingdom of God succinctly is everything that God has shown to be true about himself and about us, and we happen to believe it. If you buy into what God says about himself and about you, then you're in the kingdom of God. If you say, I reject this, then you're not in the kingdom of God. And these five parables in Matthew 13 all look at that same subject, the kingdom of God, but from different perspectives. The first parable first 10 or 12 verses, <coughs> is perhaps the best-known parable, the sower and the seed. And you, and you know that one, right? Farmer back in those days didn't have the equipment we have nowadays. He worked the soil as best as he could in that parched area we call the Middle East. And once he turned it over a little bit, he took his seed, held usually in some sort of bag or voucher, and he would cast it. Some falls in a hard place, doesn't grow at all. Some falls amongst weeds. Some's among thorns, 
some sprouts up quickly and burns off. Some turns into wonderful grain. And Jesus explains that parable. He doesn't do that often, but this one he did explain and said this is the different reactions to being confronted by truth in the human experience. Next parable. Parable of the weeds. Seems to be about what you and I would call the visible church right here. The parable of the weeds, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is, is like this. That when the good things grow, when there is belief, there's also going to be this. Weeds are growing too. They give the appearance of being edible, but they really aren't that good. What's he talking about? It seems to be the visible church. That within the visible church, there are people who say, I believe, and they really do. And there are other people who say, I believe, but they really don't. I'm not going to take a show of hands here. I'm not going to ask you to point out one another, who's who. But God is saying that the weeds grow right with the good plants, and he will pluck out the weeds. Kind of a scary parable. Third parable, parable of a treasure that is found. We're going to look at that one. And it becomes invaluable, so much so that the man sells everything else and buys just that field so he can have that treasure. Fourth parable, akin to it, but a little bit different. A merchant goes looking for the ultimately beautiful pearl. He finds it, he gives up everything else, and buys that pearl. And then the fifth one. Kingdom of God that Jesus is instructing here, and he's speaking to believers, by the way. This is not to a general audience. Parables were used to speak to people who already believed in him to enhance their faith, to grow it. And in that fifth parable, he says, ultimately, there is a judgment day. And everything depends on how you believed or did not believe in truth when confronted by God the Holy Spirit. So, this is the first parable, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like the treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Each of these parables is saying and reinforcing the idea that it's good for us to value the gospel. And everybody here would be saying, well, we value the gospel. That's why we're here this morning. If we didn't value the gospel, we wouldn't be here. So, Mr. Guest Preacher, could you tell us something new or different, or can we just be done with this? How much do you really value the gospel? How much do I really value the gospel? This little parable, one-third of the 66 words that comprise these two parables, one-third of it causes us to just ponder for a moment what, what in fact is the gospel and how, and how much do we value it. We try to articulate the gospel in a very visual way. Right or wrong, and my wife can testify to this, right or wrong, I have dragged along roughly 2,000 books with me through the last, how many moves in the last, a lot of, yeah. 35 of those boxes are not even unpacked. They stay stacked in the garage because I'm sure someday I will unpack them and read them all again. But some of them I have unpacked and some of the files I have looked into. And the other day I did find a way that summarized for me yet again what exactly is this gospel that causes so much conflict and, and it is taken for granted so often with, within the church. 
It's an account from a man by the name of Henry Nuon. If you've never heard of him, that's okay. He's a Roman Catholic priest, turned into a great writer, one of the best writers of the 20th century. Died a few years ago up in Toronto, Canada. Henry Nuon talks about his early years as a priest. He functioned primarily in South America, particularly in Paraguay in the 1970s. If you know anything about South American history in the 70s, not a good place to be. A lot of drugs flying around, worse, a lot of military-driven, overbearing governments. And Paraguay was a classic example of that. Nuan is functioning there as the chief priest of a rather large Catholic church. An acquaintance of his, a good friend, is a preeminent doctor in that community, a doctor and a surgeon. The doctor begins to speak out against the military-driven police force that are just physically and verbally abusing the population in order to keep them under control. And, and this doctor is seeing the results of that abuse in his clinic and in his operating room. And he speaks out. And he says things publicly. And they're published in newspapers. And he gives interviews on the radio. And in retaliation, the military police kidnap his son, put him in jail, torture him, and whether intentionally or not, kill him. The doctor is allowed to go to that prison and claim the body of his son. The news spreads quickly. People want to riot in the streets. The doctor takes a public forum and says, please don't. Let's have a funeral. They have a funeral. Henry Nguyen officiates as the Catholic priest. And here's what's different. There's no coffin. There's no body that's been embalmed and dressed up to hide the abuse that went on and how this young man died. Rather, at the front of the church is the bloody mattress on which he was found in the prison, uncleaned, unwashed, still filthy and full of blood stains. There is a young man, as he was found, naked. There is a young man with all the bruises, all the wounds, all the places where you can see that cigarettes were rubbed out and electrical shock was applied. And the point of this being, there is injustice on public display. That's a good chunk of our gospel. I realize it's July, and I'm talking about Good Friday here, right? But that is a key point of our gospel. Injustice on display. Not quite naked, but pretty close on the cross. Physically abused? Absolutely. A hideous thing to look at? Absolutely. Even worse is when he speaks and he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not that you would relieve me from the physical abuse, but I'm in hell for everybody's sins right now. I could use a hand. Where are you, God? And we know the outcome after the death that God says it's been accomplished. Life is restored. Becomes the centerpiece of Christian thought and belief. The resurrection of Jesus and us. We know what occurs 40 days later. It's over. There's not going to be another Messiah. There will not be a sequel. This is it. He died. He rose. He goes back to heaven. And 10 days later, God's saying to us, to the church, Pentecost, this is the gospel. 
you possess it, speak of it. This is what we treasure. This is what Jesus has in mind when he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then his joy went and sold all he had and bought this field. We treasure this message. It's why we come back week after week to appreciate once again the message and how it plays out in our life. And in a sense, nothing else matters. If we had to give up everything, we would. If we could simply hang on to the gospel. I haven't been a parish pastor for 17 years as of this month. I kind of miss it. And here's what I miss. And I'm not being overly humble here. This is absolutely factual. My wife will testify. I learned far more in my 23 years of parish ministry from the people than what I ever taught those people. I absolutely did. And I miss it. Here's but one example. The best example I could think of, who taught me Matthew 13, verse 44, the best? I think it was Stan. Here's Stan's story. Grew up in a church. It happened to be Wisconsin Synod Lutheran. Got a job, a decent job. Married a wife, a good wife. Had kids. Had a good life. It all went down the toilet because of alcohol and adultery. He ends up without that wife. He ends up without a relationship to his children. His career hangs in a balance, but he manages to hang on to that. He's lost all semblance of a church life. He would say, my life was miserable. A friend offered him the opportunity to go to a church. It didn't happen to be a Lutheran church. He accepted the invitation. He went back to the church with that friend. This set him to thinking. Once upon a time, I was a church member. I wonder if God's grace could cover even all this. He looks up a Lutheran church. The closest one happens to be, and he shows up. And he shows up on a Sunday, and every Sunday thereafter, the only time he wasn't there, because he was a gun freak, a gun collector, if there was a great gun show going on somewhere in New Mexico and he had to go down and buy one of those. Otherwise, he's there every Sunday. When he took communion, the hand shook. It's not because he had some sort of twitch or disease. That's how much emotion each and every time occurred when he said, this was for me and my sins. And he preferred the common cup and his hand would shake so much that I would have to hold that with him as he took the Lord's blood. Further, Every Wednesday morning, largely semi-retired or retired people, or in case, some case, moms who were home with a kid or two. We went to a Bible class on Wednesday morning. Used to follow this usual thing where we follow courses of study or a topic, and after a while, somebody said, why don't we just read through the Bible? So we did. When we got to the end, we did it over again, and went on for that way for nine years. Took us roughly three years each time to read through the whole Bible together. And then we would start over and do that again. Stan was there like clockwork every Wednesday. But even further, this is the kicker. Monday night, there was an alternative worship service, a shortened worship service for those who couldn't be there on Sunday. It was shortened. 
The biggest challenge was I played the piano. We played one hymn. Jesus' Refuge of the Weary. It applies to any season. It's an Easter hymn. It's a Christmas hymn because that was the one hymn I could do. 45 minutes in the 745 Bible information class every Monday. You know what the Bible information class is, right? If you're an old timer and say, I just want a review of the overview of the doctrines of the Christian church, I might retake that course. But typically it's for people who say, I think I might like to affiliate with your church. Can you show me what you're actually teaching? My Bible information class was 19 lessons long. Sometimes it became 23 or 24 lessons because people had questions you couldn't handle in one night. So we'd add another lesson. It was taught twice a year. A minimum investment of 19 Monday nights in a row. Stan attended that class 18 consecutive times. I'm not saying he came on 18 Monday nights in a row. I'm saying the 19 lesson class and every Monday night he attended for nine years in a row. 18 different times he took that class because he always found something new in there, some little piece of assurance. He always found the stories fascinating, like his own. How did they end up in the church? Why did they come back to the church? In a sense, it's the best example I could come up with of a person that I have known who understood what it is to treasure the gospel. What I would put in front of you is that I'm not suggesting that you have to imitate this lifestyle and this preoccupation with being at these things such as this man did. He was semi-retired. His grandkids weren't in the city. He, he didn't have commitments like that. So he was constantly a church rat. He was there all the time. But it does cause us to sit and ponder as we look in a mirror. If I say it really is that valuable, how does that show up in my life? What steps do I take to hang on to the gospel? Second one is verse 45 to 46. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it, bought that pearl. It's essentially the same, and quite frankly, if you ask theologians or pastors, you're going to get one of two schools of thought. Half of them are going to say these two parables are essentially the same. It's Jesus simply being redundant like a good teacher, teaching the same thing, only with two slightly different parables. Others will say the two parables seem to be the same, but they're a little bit different. In one case, the man stumbled across a treasure, and the other one, he was looking for the treasure. If you want my personal opinion, I think this is different in that sense, in that he went looking for the treasure. At least that's the way I'm going to treat it. And, and my encouragement would be to us as individuals and as a congregation, a mission congregation, that we would understand that there are still people looking for this treasure. There really are. I, I know the church attendance percentage-wise has just plummeted in the last 15 years in this culture. I know that we write off entire generations and say, they're not going back to church. Don't even bother. Just try and find our kind of people. See if they'll join our church. But here's the truth. And I get the privilege of traveling the whole country and seeing a lot of congregations, and I've run into this all the time. Baby boomers are, in fact, 
the first generation since the 1770s to still be looking. How many of you are baby boomers? Born between 46 and 64. It was always the premise in U.S. spiritual history that if you didn't get into a church by the time you were 60, you were never going to join. Guess who's broken that mold? The crazy baby boomers. Still looking for Nirvana. Given up on the red Corvette. Given up on golf. Didn't satisfy. Maybe I can find it in a church. Maybe that's the answer. So is the next generation. Gen Xers. Nobody talks about them. There's only 47 million. Who cares? Born 65 to 80. They're tired of hearing you don't care about us. Some of us are now on the verge of being grandparents. Some Gen Xers are, in fact, grandparents. They're older. They're doing the same thing that baby boomers are. They are actually still looking, some of them. And then the one that we all want to write off, the millennials, born between 80 and 2000. What a bunch of spiritual punks. They didn't keep on doing the church the way we did it. Oh, really? Go hang out with some of them. They're far more social than baby boomers. They actually do like to think as a group. That's how they learned in school. And they actually do have questions. They are willing to have reasonable conversations. They're not sure in many cases what the church's answers are because they haven't gone to a church because in many cases all they saw from their baby boomer parents was a bunch of hypocrisy. I realize it's a shallow excuse, but that's their excuse. Sit down and have a conversation with them. They are looking. They are asking questions. They are somewhat like the people that Jesus refers to in here as the merchant who went looking for a treasure. They're still looking. How can you make a vast sweeping statement like that, that, that people still are looking for truth? Because God himself has said so. Remember Lutheran Catechism? You were taught the natural knowledge of God. You were taught that God created the world so that we would ask questions about how did we get here and who created this. You were given a natural knowledge of God, that there is a higher power to whom we are accountable. Paul summed it all up in Acts 17 to a group of people who believed in 32 gods but didn't have the right God. Paul explained their universe and their spiritual longings in this way. God did this so that people would seek him perhaps reach out for him and find him. The person in the parable, the one who stumbled across the treasure, that's you. The person in the parable who went looking for the pearl and found it, that's you. Maybe your backstory is you stumbled across it because somebody shared the truth about Christianity, and for whatever reason, you reacted in a positive way. Or maybe you went to a funeral or a wedding. It's sort of a social thing, but you heard about sin and grace. And you said, I think I would like some of that. Or maybe you intentionally went looking for it. Something was missing. In either case, you sit here and you have professed your faith here because God says you are that person who has found the treasure. So let's go back to Ken Jennings. You know what your destiny is. You know you have the treasure, you have forgiveness, you have the status of a saint, there will be heaven. 
your eternal life influences the present. Since I have this treasure, since I understand the gospel, maybe, just maybe, in my relationships, I could be the one to say I'm sorry first. Maybe, just maybe, I could be the one who says I forgive even though you didn't ask for forgiveness. Perhaps I could set aside the social norms wherein we're no longer supposed to talk about religion in polite company. Really? What are you going to talk about? The weather? The Minnesota Vikings? Give me a break. Of course you would talk about religion. Cross the barrier and open up and just talk to somebody. Take a risk and just see if they might be interested in hearing about Jesus. And maybe, just maybe, assess your time wisely. If the gospel really is that valuable, then maybe Sunday needs to be a consistent practice. And maybe Bible class is a good forum for me to value that treasure even more highly. You possess the treasure. Live as such. Hey, Pastor Wilkie here. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon. Hey, could you do us a favor? Could you hit like or, or subscribe on wherever you're listening to this podcast? That really helps us get seen by more people so that more people might hear about Jesus and, and hear the same message that you're hearing. We hope you, you come back and, and enjoy a, another sermon next week. God bless.